Welcome to the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University in Qatar. These podcasts are part of a research initiative titled Building a Legacy, Qatar FIFA World Cup 2022. My name is Ahmed Dallal. I'm the Dean of Georgetown University in Qatar. With us today is uh, Dr. Daniel Reich, a sports policy and politics expert. Uh, who's joined Georgetown uh, as a visiting professor from uh, coming from the American University of Peru. Dr. Reich, the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University in Qatar has just launched this research initiative titled Building a Legacy FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022. Can you tell us about the overall aims of this research initiative? Yeah, uh, what we want to do is to provide a platform for an academic uh, engagement on the FIFA World Cup 2022. Uh, Previous research on uh, mega sporting events like the Olympics or World Cups has focused mainly on the economics, on uh, like the economic impact of the tournament. But we want to choose a multidisciplinary approach uh, by involving scholars from different disciplines, uh, political science, sociology, history, law, anthropology, and others. Um, to discuss um, the impact of the event, not only on Qatar, but also on regional and global affairs. We strongly believe that uh, this World Cup has uh, implications on the social, political and economic development in Qatar, but also plays a role in uh, regional affairs and um, also in international affairs, the way like Qatar is perceived worldwide. And um, CS has done previous project on sports. There has been the book Sport, Politics and Society uh, in the Middle East, um, uh, which has been published with Oxford University Press. And there is a recent project on football in the Middle East, which is in the final editing process. So this is building on what has been done before on CS, but now we will have more uh, dynamic approach Uh, with uh, continuous contributions uh, to the debate rather than like a major academic outcome like a book. So could you kindly elaborate some more about your own personal role and how you plan to lead this project? Yes, so um, there are three main pillars. One is the FIFA World Cup 2022 lecture series. Uh, which we launched last week with, uh, as I believe, excellent lecture by uh, David Goldblatt, a British uh, journalist and historian, um, who has just recently written a a book entitled The Age of Football. And uh, he discussed the World Cup in Qatar in historical perspective. And the next talk in the lecture series in November will be by Matthias Krug, Uh, He is a German born and raised in Doha. He came as a child uh, with his father, who was an athletic coach to Doha. And he played as a kid football, where now all the skyscrapers are being built. And he wrote a very interesting book on Qatar football history. It's interesting because when Qatar was awarded the World Cup, there was a bit of a narrative in the international media that there is nothing uh, like a football history in Qatar. But he argues it's not the case. It's a young country which was just established in the early 1970s. They were in the final of the under-20 football World Cup in 1981. They qualified for the uh, uh, 
Olympic football tournament in 1984. So he's presenting a lot of facts uh, to make the case that there is something like a football history uh, in Qatar. And he's mixing this with like a lot of autobiographic informations as he spent all his life in Qatar. So that's the first pillar, the lecture series. The second pillar is um, a blog. So with uh, continuous contributions uh, to the debate, um, brief contributions, because we know everybody is busy. So uh, these contributions will be like four to 600 words long, which is like a page or one and a half pages. And the uh, first two uh, editions, just to give uh, like examples, uh, the first two blog entries are the first is discussing does the World Cup leave white elephants, um, uh, meaning infrastructure that is not being used after the event, or is there like a post-event strategy? And it's discussing the case of our stadium in Education City, where Georgetown University is um, based, uh, which uh, has really like a complex strategy on, on using the facility after the event. Uh, and also our students, of course, will benefit from it. Uh, the second uh, block uh, entry is by a colleague from Qatar University, and he's discussing the identity of the Qatar national men's football team, which is mainly comprised of two major groups. One is uh, ethnic Qatari citizens, and the other one are uh, children of migrants. But they were all, like, most of them were born in Qatar, and they all grew up in Qatar. So he argues all of them consider Qatar as their home. And um, so then the third pillar is a podcast series. So why the blog posts will be by uh, uh, academics, by uh, our network of scholars in Qatar and abroad. In the podcast, we want to uh, uh, go uh, uh, a bit beyond academia and also uh, interview uh, uh, people who are involved in football. So uh, in the first, uh, in the next uh, episode, the first one is our conversation. In the next episode, I have had a very uh, interesting conversation with Monica Stab one of the um, most successful female football coaches in the world who has been also a coach of the Qatar national women's team. And we discuss the potential and obstacles and cultural bar barriers uh, for women's football development in Qatar and how the World Cup can contribute to increase uh, female sport participation in the country. I believe uh, uh, the uh, conversation with her I found very inspiring. And uh, I hope that all who listen to the podcast will like the conversation with her. So that are our three main pillars, the lecture series, as a blog and the podcast. We are also working on additional features, but let's just talk at this point about those that are already uh, in the process of being realized. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, I will ask you about a couple of the things that you briefly outlined now. Uh, but let, and let me start with last week's lecture. You've already gotten off to a very strong start uh, with the lecture of, uh, of award-winning British author David Goldblatt. Um, what else can we expect from the lecture series? I mean, you did mention the second lecture, but beyond that, I mean, what, what, what would be the focus of some of the, uh, some, some of the themes of the lecture series uh, and, uh, you know, as one pillar of the, of the project? Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, there are a number of issues. I mean, um, uh, so uh, when Qatar was awarded the, the, the World Cup, uh, this happened at a time when um, 
the FIFA World Cup was going to new lands as the then FIFA president Blatter called it. So the traditional powerhouses in global sport have been uh, Western Europe uh, and um, North America um, and uh, Japan, uh, uh, recently China, uh, Australia. But now we have new hosts of mega sporting events like South Africa hosted the FIFA World Cup in 2010 uh, Brazil, uh, Qatar, the uh, Olympics have been in China and Russia. And so this uh, needs to be studied that uh, uh, what are the dynamics uh, of uh, hosting such events um, for domestic political development, but also for the external relations. And I think the case of Qatar is unique. Okay, David Goldblatt argued last week in his lecture, there has been a, a small host country before, 1930, Uruguay. This is true. Um, but uh, what is unique to Qatar is that they do not only host the event to um, modernize their infrastructure, uh, to build new stadiums, um, um, as they also want to uh, brand the country, they want to gain prestige in international affairs and uh, at the very end also use the event as a, a, a strategy for national security. So I think uh, all these uh, implications for domestic political development but also for relations with other countries um, are going to be discussed in the, uh, in the, in the lecture series. Uh, and of course, uh, um, we already have now two excellent speakers, but we will also have more excellent speakers, uh, which will give similar good talks than David did last week. Uh, great. Another issue you mentioned briefly in, in, uh, already is the issue of uh, naturalization. In 2019, you co-authored an article titled Politics of Naturalization of Foreign-Born Athletes. Qatar and Turkey in comparison. Could you please describe the role of foreign players, the role that foreign players have played in Qatar's national football team, and what the impact has been on the sports in, on, on, on sports in general in Qatar and the region, and you know more broadly the types of issues that, that are connected to this, to this whole question of naturalization? Different to what many people think, the team that will represent Qatar at the World Cup 2022 uh, will be a team of uh, players who uh, were born and grew up in Qatar. And the number of naturalized players might be similar to those of other countries uh, um, having teams in the World Cup. But uh, Qatar made headlines with naturalization of foreign athletes in other sports. Um, I traveled all the way from Beirut to the 2015 Handball World Cup in, in Qatar because I really like handball. And I mean, the Qatari team was mainly comprised of, uh, you know, players from, um, from the Balkan, from Spain, from France, from Egypt. And uh, so there were really like negative headlines. Um, all over the world, which I think also hurt the uh, uh, soft power gains uh, Qatar has with its investments into sports. So uh, what I and my Turkish colleague Shem Tinas did in this article, we made a case study of the 2016 uh, Olympic teams of Turkey and Qatar. And collecting the data was already a, a bit tricky, I have to say. 
Um, but um, according to the data, uh, two-thirds of the Qatari uh, uh, Olympic team were foreign-born athletes. So that's different to the national football team. But like in many sports, like handball, athletics, uh, Qatar relies a lot on foreign-born athletes. And um, naturalizations happen all over the world. All countries naturalize athletes. But um, some countries like recently Qatar, Turkey, Bahrain, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, they brought it to a higher level. So they really rely a lot on naturalized athletes. And I think it's uh, also interesting to see the regime type of the countries that naturalize uh, athletes uh, because um, they are less open debates about the matter. When uh, the UK had uh, for the 2012 Olympics in London, 10% of its athletes in the Olympic squad for, were foreign born. There was a big debate in the yellow press that they are plastic Brits and whatever. So such a country, country could never increase the number of uh, naturalized athletes. But there is less of an open debate uh, in, in a country like Turkey or Qatar. But I think it's needed because naturalizations uh, are a legitimate strategy uh, um, in uh, uh, international sports, but they should follow a strategy. Um, for example, uh, the women who won Olympic medals for Bahrain, they won it in long distance running. Where is the strategy to naturalize uh, African women for long distance running in Bahrain? I think it's questionable because uh, long distance running won't become a major sport in the desert. But if you naturalize athletes in sports, which have a lot of local potential, where the naturalized athletes help to improve the um, skills of local athletes, then I think it can make a lot of sense. So I, I, I hope that uh, also with, uh, that's also one of the topics we can have like in the blog or podcast. I think we need a discussion uh, the way uh, naturalizations are being done and they should follow a strategy. It's a legitimate uh, a policy to naturalize foreign-born athletes, but it should follow a strategy. Thank you. Uh, another topic you, you already mentioned is uh, our education city stadium. I read your article about the potential multiple uses of the education city stadium after the Games. Can you elaborate a little bit, please, about how the issue of sustainability is becoming central to sporting events all over the world? and how Qatar proposes to address uh, sustainability during the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Sport and environment is becoming a major issue in the academic literature on uh, sport. Uh, I contributed myself with two articles to it uh, when I uh, discussed the uh, green strategies of the NFL, the American Football League in the US, and the uh, Bundesliga, the uh, German uh, uh, major football league. And um, at the World Cup, Germany was the first country in 2006 with an environmental program. It was called Green Goal, and it was uh, also uh, implemented at the 2011 Women's World Cup in Germany. So Qatar has very ambitious objectives when it comes to um, the environment at the World Cup. I think it might become the most environmental-friendly World Cup of all times. A huge solar power plant is being built that should cover the electricity con uh, 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 need during the event. Uh, but then will be used uh, for decades to come when the World Cup is over. 
Um, some of the stadiums have been built by reused material. For one of the stadiums is built by a demolished other stadium. Our education city stadium will be um, reduced from 40,000 to 20,000 seat capacity after the event, which I believe is very good because let's face it, Qatar is a small country. There won't be many events which fill a 40 thousand seat stadium. So I think uh, this sounds all fantastic. Also the schools and research institutes that should be located uh, in the stadium after the event. Of course, our students will uh, highly benefit uh, from the stadium. Uh, and I hope, I just hope that everything that has been announced is also being implemented because then uh, Qatar will really set a very high standard for future hosts of uh, mega sporting events. Wonderful. Uh, Daniel, in 2019, you co-edited with Tamir Sorek uh, a series initiated book on sport, politics, and society in the Middle East. Um, can you uh, share with our audience some of the, uh, of the issues that the book addresses? Yeah, of course, one uh, uh, issue from a Qatari perspective that has been addressed in the book is how the powerhouses of Middle Eastern sport have changed. In the first part of the 20th centuries, it was like Egypt, Iran. Egypt won a lot of medals at the Olympic Games in the first part of the 20th century. Of course, Qatar was not even established at that time. Um, but now a shift has taken place um, with Qatar, but also um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, uh, hosting a lot of international mega sporting events, um, uh, international uh, sports uh, institutes, um, and um, uh, even uh, uh, sports governing uh, bodies like the International Cricket uh, Association, which has moved to the UAE. So uh, the, 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 some of the Gulf countries have really uh, moved to the center, from the periphery to the center of global sports. The book starts with discussing uh, what brought modern sport to the Middle East. It's what I like to call the three M's, merchants, uh, missionaries, and uh, uh, militaries. And uh, then the book is structured in two parts. Part one is discussing sport as a contested terrain where struggles over money, resources, and rights are fought. And the second part is uh, discussing the politics and economics of Middle Eastern sport. Um, if there's something like a common thread in the book, I would say it is that we argue that sport is not just an interesting angle or a lens through which one can discuss an issue. It is in itself a major force that shapes uh, individual lives as well as large-scale political processes. As we, by the way, can just see in Qatar, I mean, what is happening now that the, the, the change of the labor law, the introduction of uh, minimum pay, um, uh, allowing uh, employees to, to, to switch uh, uh, working places uh, uh, without uh, needing, uh, needing, as before, uh, um, approval um, by, by the sponsor. I mean, if this is properly implemented, it's revolutionary and it will set a new standard for the entire region, which has a similar labor system than it used to be in Qatar. Thank you. 
Uh, Daniel, you became interested in studying Qatar many years before you joined Georgetown faculty in 2020, and even before you started working with Asir's on the on the two projects we mentioned earlier. Uh, for example, in 2015, you published an article titled "Investing in Sporting Success as a Domestic and Foreign Policy Tool: The Case of Qatar" in the International Journal of Sport Policy and Politics. Was your interest in studying Qatar related only to the FIFA World Cup 2022, or have you been watching Qatar before the awarding of the tournament? I, I guess there was a mix of reasons, but certainly the World Cup uh, awarding of the World Cup in 2010 to Qatar uh, was one big factor in um, making me interested in studying Qatar. Um, all my degree work has been on environmental and energy policy issues. So I'm in general interested in uh, countries um, with uh, fossil resources. And I have some interest in how countries um, allocate their waste. So I've studied before uh, on Norway and I've been in Norway. And I think really we can learn so much from, from Norway with their sovereign waste funds and the ethical standards they've introduced. Um, and um, so uh, that's also something I like to discuss in my classes. I mean, the case of Norway, they're really like pioneering on so many fields. And um, so, uh, but yes, the World Cup uh, uh, and in general, like all the investments of Qatar into sports uh, um, uh, uh, attracted me. And uh, I mean, it's not just hosting the World Cup and many other mega sporting events, uh, the Qatar, uh, um, uh, the sports entity of the Qatari uh, Sovereign Waste Funds has uh, um, purchased uh, one big football club, Paris Saint-Germain. I'm personally German. I always see that Bayern Munich is doing their uh, winter training camp in Doha. Uh, uh, when I was living in Lebanon, uh, uh, being sports was essential for my daily life as I watched it many uh, evenings uh, every day, uh, every week. So, yeah, Qatar has invested so much in sport. And, of course, it's interesting to see what drives these investments. And I think it's not just um, to, to diversify the Qatari economy. It's uh, not just to uh, contribute to a healthy society. Uh, uh, it's not just uh, to contribute to national pride. What is unique about Qatar is that it's really a tool for its foreign relations. Uh, and uh, at the very end to its national security. And when I wrote this in 2015, uh, I, I'm not sure whether everybody bought this argument, but I think since the blockade since 2017, we can see how important sport is for Qatar. And I think, I mean, this is speculation, uh, but without all these sports investments, we don't know uh, what would happen uh, after uh, the blockade started. Some people say maybe, Qatar would have been even invaded, but now Qatar is really on the map. Everybody knows Qatar. Um, not everybody might perceive Qatar positively. I mean, there are many issues uh, critically discussed, but the country is on the map and it has successfully built relations with other countries and sports played an essential role in that process. Before uh, before closing, uh, are there any uh, additional things uh, uh, that you want to share with our audience uh, and listeners, audience listeners, that is, about some upcoming milestones to watch for uh, toward the planning of the 
uh, of the 2022 event in Qatar? Of course, uh, um, Dalai, we don't know how COVID-19 will affect uh, the event. And I mean, uh, Qatar might have thought a lot of, uh, about a lot of issues uh, uh, in the last years, but certainly not that uh, <laughs> a pandemic would uh, come. And uh, now we can see, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm positive that a vaccine will be ready prior to the event and that the event will be staged as scheduled. Uh, but I think it's very difficult to make any predictions. But of course, as somebody who has a training in comparative politics, it's very interesting now to study the different approaches around the world, how to deal with COVID-19 in sports. So we have countries which have stopped their leagues. We have other countries which uh, keep operating their leagues, but without fans. We have others who permit uh, a certain percentage of capacity. Qatar is one of them, uh, allowing 20% indoor and 30% uh, of the capacity outdoor. Uh, my country of origin, Germany, is also similar. They allow uh, in stadiums 20% of the stadium capacity unless uh, a certain number of COVID-19 cases um, exist in the respective municipality. So this, of course, is interesting. And I think it's so important now uh, uh, to, to follow these different approaches. And I think there's also a lot of research done around these different approaches uh, being in a stadium seems to be relatively safe since it's uh, it's fresh air. But uh, of course, you know, coming to the stadium and, and waiting at the entrance, etc. So there are like uh, many uh, um, uh, components in the process that need to be studied, how to deal with them that people don't get infected. Uh, but maybe uh, by 2022, uh, the issue is resolved by having a vaccine. Uh, of course, what worries me a bit is that a World Cup is not just the World Cup. It's also a process where in each, on each continent, countries need to qualify for the event. So it remains to see whether this can be uh, all done in time. Uh, but honestly, I'm slightly uh, optimistic because it's two more years to go. Um, for the organizers of the Summer Olympic Games with, in Tokyo, which has been already postponed from this year to next year, the situation might be a bit more severe. But overall, I'm optimistic that the World Cup 2022 will be held as scheduled. And I'm super excited about studying uh, the uh, implications of the event on Qatar, on the region, on, on global affairs. Uh, with my colleagues at Sears uh, in the uh, next months to come. Uh, thank you, Professor Jai, for this interesting conversation. And of course, I'm grateful to you and to our uh, colleagues in the Sears team uh, for uh, launching this initiative uh, around the World Cup 2022. Uh, to our listeners, please remember to tune in uh, to our next podcasts. Professor Reich will be leading these uh, podcasts where we will discuss the key milestones for Qatar during the coming year before the Games. So until next time, stay active and stay safe. Thank you.